This week, Hertz DS hearing sidetracked by alternative proposal. Automatore's Gildemeister files for Chapter 11 in SDNY. And, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. Later, we'll hear a replay of our team's webinar on the rejection of midstream contracts in bankruptcy. It's Friday, April 16th. A hearing this morning to consider approval of the Hertz debtor's disclosure statement and a related equity purchase and commitment agreement, or EPCA, was quickly sidetracked after the debtors acknowledged that they had received an alternative plan proposal Thursday evening from Sertares and Knighthead. Tom Loria of White & Case counseled to the debtors that the Finance Committee of the Hertz Board of Directors held an emergency meeting Thursday night and deemed the proposal, quote, bona fide, but not enough to delay approval of the DS, an existing deal, while the company's advisors and full board conducted further due diligence on the proposal. However, Judge Mary Walrath at the hearing stopped the debtors from providing testimony regarding the disclosure statement and EPCA, saying instead that, quote, a short continuance was the best course of action for the estate. The court continued the DS hearing to Wednesday, April 21st at 11.30 a.m. Eastern in order to allow the debtors and their advisors time to evaluate the new bid and continue to exercise their fiduciary duties. Judge Walrath precluded detailed discussion of the alternative proposal at the hearing. However, Loria told the court he had received a three-page deck from Knighthead and Certeres containing the alternative proposal on Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern. The deck itself contained no documentation or evidence of funding, he said, but additional documentation for the alternative proposal was provided early Friday morning. Loria said that, nonetheless, the proposal faces, quote, significant skepticism. The debtors have not received, quote, a single communication from anyone in the group, and the proposal, quote, certainly isn't intended to deliver equity value to the company's shareholders, he asserted. Andrew Glenn of Glenn Ager counseled to an ad hoc shareholder group, and Stephen Hessler of Kirkland counseled to Knighthead and Sertares, each defended the merits of the new bid, saying that a pause in proceedings to allow its valuation was necessary and would not prejudice the debtors. Glenn told the court that his group has been, quote, working tirelessly with Knighthead and Sertares to bring the proposal adding that it would pay unsecured creditors in full. The proposal includes $2.5 billion in committed capital from Apollo, he added. On Friday morning, an ad hoc committee of shareholders filed a Rule 2019 statement in the the cases, pardon me, the group, which consists of eight members and is represented, as I said, by Glenn Ager, disclosed holdings of about 15.12 million shares in aggregate as of April 15th. Automatory's Gildemeister, a vehicle importer and distributor operating primarily in Chile and Peru, filed a prepackaged Chapter 11 plan on Monday in the Southern District of New York. Creditors holding approximately 90.9% of the outstanding 7.5 senior secured notes due 2025 have signed on to the RSA. Also backing the plan are 69.3% of the holders of Class 5 claims, largely made up of the unsecured deficiency claims of the 2025 notes, but also including, quote, unsecured notes legacy claims remaining from a prior refinancing and, quote, related party claims. Altogether, $1,943,500 in debt obligations owed to Gildemeister shareholders have agreed to support the plan. 
Support for the plan appears to be driven by the deficiency claim component of Class 5, while Alston and Byrd counsel to holders of a majority of the company's approximately $23 million in stub eight and a quarter notes due 2021 indicated that the bulk of the class are claims held by retail investors in South America who may not understand the plan process. The company attributed the filing to a complex and competitive operating environment, which includes the impact of COVID-19 on operations, plus market declines in Chile, brought about as a result of difficult market conditions and macroeconomic factors that predate the COVID-19 pandemic. Since the 2025 notes were issued in 2019, the debtors say their cash flow did not grow enough to support their existing debt, quote, on current terms. The debtors filed a dip financing motion seeking approval of a credit facility of up to $26.5 million in aggregate with an interim request of up to $16.95 million, stating that, quote, time is of the essence. Given the milestones under their RSA, the debtors have filed a scheduling motion seeking a, quote, expeditious combined hearing on May 21st for the confirmation of their plan and DS. At the April 15th first day hearing, Judge Lisa Beckerman granted the debtors requested first day relief, including authorizing the interim dip financing. Judge Beckman also approved a, quote, fast track plan confirmation hearing and scheduled the plan confirmation hearing for a date no later than May 25th. Under the RSA, the debtors face an outside date of June 1 for approval of the DS and confirmation of the plan. On Monday evening, the PROMISA Oversight Board disclosed the key terms of an agreement in principle with assured guarantee and national public finance guarantee to restructure the debt of the HTA and CCDA and to settle claims against the Commonwealth over monies, quote, clawed back from Commonwealth instrumentalities, including the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority, HTA, as I said, and the Puerto Rico Convention Center District Authority, CCDA. The Oversight Board said the agreement, quote, provides a template for treatment of, quote, similarly situated creditors at the Puerto Rico Infrastructure Financing Authority, or PRIFA, and the Metropolitan Bus Authority, or MBA. According to the Oversight Board, the agreement will be incorporated into the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment filed on March 8th. However, the CCDA will commence a separate Title III proceeding or Title VI qualified modification to be confirmed on the same timeline as the Commonwealth Title III case. The agreement also calls for HTA to file its own plan of adjustment by January 31st, 2022, enabling HTA to exit bankruptcy that same year. Under the agreement, creditors will receive a Commonwealth Contingent Value Instrument, or CVI, linked to the potential outperformance of Puerto Rico's 5.5% sales and use tax based on projections in the 2020 Certified Fiscal Plan. According to the Oversight Board, CCDA bondholders will receive $112 million in cash, representing a fixed reduction of claims by about 75%. HTA bondholders will receive $1.245 billion in newly issued bonds and $389 million in cash, representing an aggregate fixed reduction of the amount of HTA claims by about 70%. On Tuesday, AMBAC filed in opposition to the Promisa Oversight Board's motion to lift the court's litigation stay to press forward prosecuting the revenue bond litigation. AMBAC characterizes the board's request to file a new round of partial summary judgment motions on some of the remaining courts in the revenue bond complaints as, quote, the latest unprincipled shift in the board's litigation strategy. Top red stories this week included... Brazos Electric seeks appointment of three-member independent bankruptcy advisory committee to consult on potential conflicts of interest, other estate administration issues. GTT discussing plan with lenders to pay combination of cash, take-back debt, and equity, note holders to receive equity and warrants, March financials in line with budget, 
And ERCOT details default uplift invoice process for $2.9 billion in outstanding short payments. Estimates payoff will take 96 years under uplift proposal. And now, as always, here's Jim Holloway, our senior reporter based in Houston, with the week ahead. Well, thanks, folks. Good morning, all. Next week, earnings start to emerge from the blur that was the first quarter. A few to highlight for this week. Netflix on Tuesday, April 20th. Martin Midstream on Wednesday, April 21st. American Airlines and Cleveland Cliffs with always engaging Lorenzo Goncalves on Thursday, April 22nd. Arch Call and Revlon are also due that day, and it is, as we know, just the calm before the storm, because there's more due. And that's it from me. For even more highlights of the week ahead, please see our weekly forward, released every Monday. Thanks, and back to New York. Thanks, Jim. And next up, here's our midstream webinar replay. You'll hear from the team. They'll discuss 2020 cases such as Chesapeake, Extraction, Ultra, and Sanchez. Companies including these have used the bankruptcy process to attempt to reject local gathering agreements in the course of which debtors must contend with questions about whether agreements contain covenants that run with the land. Debtors have also attempted to reject interstate pipeline agreements in which jurisdictional issues arise with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. During 2020, bankruptcy courts rendered several decisions that were largely supportive of the debtors rejecting both of these types of agreements lending credence to the emerging theory that a debtor may reject such agreements notwithstanding the presence of said covenant that runs with the land. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on today's installment of the Reorg webinar series. We'll get started shortly. Today's topic is review of 2020 midstream rejection issues. Debtor-friendly decisions abound. I'm Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research for America's Core Credit by Reorg, and joining me in today's discussion are Senior Legal Analyst, Annalisa Hurtado, and Distressed Legal Analyst, Mike Legg and Sean Daly. Please note that if you'd like to access this webinar again later, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page later today for Reorg clients. Please make sure to review the resources section at the end of the slides where we provide case-level information and references and links to prior cases. These links will also be sent later today. So today we focus on energy companies, and in particular, how exploration and production companies use the bankruptcy process to reject midstream contracts. After a brief introduction, we'll provide a legal overview of rejecting contracts in bankruptcy, and then discuss some of the major issues companies have encountered, including the ability to reject the contracts in the context of covenants running with the land and issues brought about by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We will then dive into cases in which these issues are live, then jump into how outcomes shape agreements with stakeholders and then provide our takeaways. We'll answer questions at the end, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. Let's get started. So a brief introduction, in 2020, oil prices were on average 32% lower than 2019, and of course, we all remember in the spring when spot oil briefly turned negative. The number of energy bankruptcies, according to Reorg's first state team, increased 62% in 2020, and over $80 billion of liabilities were restructured. Why do EMPs reject their midstream contracts? Perhaps market expectations in the demand environment changed from the time of signing and the company would like to adjust to the current market price. EMPs could reduce future production. So where they might have wanted to produce X by a certain year and contracted for delivery to match, perhaps those expectations are now lower. EMPs might also might alternatively want to adjust their footprint and leave certain areas completely. So we no longer have the need for certain contracts on formal land. Next slide, please. 
the types of pipelines we'll discuss today include gathering pipelines, which attach right, which attach right to the well, wet, the wellhead and bring to a central location point. Reject, rejecting these pipelines often involves the issue of does the contract create covenants running with the land? And next we'll discuss interstate pipelines in which FERC will claim jurisdiction. To put these in perspective, the potential savings from rejection can be big, as is the case in Chesapeake, and stakeholders prior to entering into agreements with debtors might require the debtors achieving results, as in the case with Gulfport. I will now pass it on to Ana Lucia, who will provide an overview of the rejection process. Thanks, Mark. So some legal background to kick us off. First off, what exactly is rejection? Well, under Section 365 of the Bankruptcy Code, a debtor in possession may assume or reject any executory contract. All an executory contract means is that it's a contract where both parties have material obligations uh, yet to be performed. And one thing to note is that although Section 365 applies broadly to any executory contract, Congress has crafted a handful of exceptions to rejection, like certain exceptions dealing with the Commodity Exchange Act, but none of those create an exception for contracts regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC, like the gas and oil transportation service agreements that we're focusing on today's webinar, uh, part of this discussion. Um, that lack of an exception, it's an important point and one that'll come up again later in our presentation since recent rejection decisions have stressed the lack of an explicit rejection exception, carving out midstream agreements as part of their reasoning on, on at least certain of the issues that we'll be talking about. Next slide, please. So that leads us to the question, why is rejection important in the first place? Well, rejection allows debtors in bankruptcy to reevaluate the wisdom of continuing to perform under a particular contract based on whatever circumstances they're facing. So essentially by rejecting the executory contract, uh, the, the debtors are permitted to walk away from further performance of their obligations if they determine it's a burdensome contract. Rejection really is one of the most valuable legal tools available to debtors in bankruptcy, not just because of the optionality it gives them, but also because the lingering threat or potential of rejection can sometimes motivate counterparties to negotiate with the debtors um, and, and eventually lead to more favorable terms um, you know, to avoid having to engage in the re rejection fight in the first place. In the midstream context, rejection has definitely been one of the hottest tools used recently as part of large chapter 11 cases. And as Mark's intro spotlighted, the economic benefits of rejection for debtors' estates can be quite significant. With it being such an important tool and with the large number of uh, EMP companies filing for Chapter 11 recently, it's not surprising that many of these debtors have opted to take advantage of this legal tool. Um, importantly though, there's, there are several aspects of the overall rejection fight that are unsettled and still have significant open questions. And because uh, of different courts having taken different approaches um, or outline different views on the various issues. It's an area that struggling EMP debtors must understand very well 
when they're trying to determine where they should file for Chapter 11. Next slide, please. So what is the legal impact of rejection? And this takes us to the Supreme Court's uh, 2019 Mission Product case. In 2019, the Supreme Court made clear um, in Mission Product Holdings v. Technology that rejection constitutes a breach of contract. So in other words, rejection of contract has the same effect as a breach outside of bankruptcy. The Mission Product Court also explained that rejection doesn't rescind or terminate the underlying contract. And instead, the court explained that the effective rejection is that it gives the counterparty a claim for damages while leaving intact the rights the counterparty has received under the contract. So with rejection being a breach of contract by the debtor immediately before the petition date, Generally, this breach results in a general unsecured claim against the bankruptcy estate for the damages caused by the rejection, by the debtor's rejection and non-performance. Uh, and that means, you know, in bankruptcy world, that the claim will be paid pro rata with the debtor's other unsecured creditors. Um, and as you all know, they frequently get paid far less than 100 cents on the dollar as part of Chapter 11 plans. Next slide, please. So midstream counterparties frequently used lines of attack in an attempt to stave off the rejection of their contracts. Two of the most frequently used weapons um, by midstream counterparties are first, asserting that their contracts contain covenants running with the land, the presence of which was believed at least until recently to shield a contract from rejection. And second, if they're not able to win the covenants running with the land fight, pressing for the actual rejection process to include more significant hurdles than it normally does. So on this latter point, two of the increased hurdles that midstream counterparties have advocated for in recent cases are the application of a heightened public interest standard to the rejection decision, and a significant FERC role in the rejection process. As we'll be discussing though, several decisions from 2020 could signal a weakening of one or both of these strategies. Next slide, please. Which brings me to the first attempted shield uh, frequently used by midstream counterparties. The argument that their contracts contain covenants running with the land and therefore cannot be rejected. As we'll talk more about shortly though, that assumption um, that, you know, that, that if they contain covenants running with the land, those contracts can't be rejected, that assumption has been tested recently. Um, but first we'll run through how this strategy played out in, in recent cases. And that leads us to the question, what is a covenant running with the land? Um, sometimes also referred to as a real covenant. Basically, it just means that the covenant and the underlying rights are tied to the property or the land and therefore pass on with successive transfers and continue existing regardless of ownership. And that's in contrast with what, what uh, is called personal covenants, which bind only the parties that executed the agreement. So when bankruptcy courts are tasked with having to determine whether an agreement contains a covenant running with the land, they're required to apply 
the governing state law on the issue. And that most frequently is based on the state law selected by the contracting parties in their forum selection clause. And then the bankruptcy courts have to apply that state's iteration of the covenants running with the land test to the particulars of the agreement in question. So it's highly, highly focused on each contract's specific language. Underscoring how important those two points are, um, Judge Sanchi in, in the September 30th extraction hearing um, dealing with this issue said that even though the party's oral arguments had liberally referenced cases like Sabine, Alta Mesa, and Badlands, he, he doesn't think any of those are, quote, anything more than informative, unquote. And, and that's because each of those cases involved a different governing state law and the respective contracts included different language. So, you know, he ended up stressing that none of those prior cases were binding on him. And he th even threw in that he didn't even find them really compelling. Um, so that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. And, and it really does emphasize that these two, two points are quite important. Um, rather than go into the particulars of the governing state laws and the specific contractual language used in each of the 2020 cases, uh, which could honestly be like hours and hours, what, what follows in the next few slides is a very high level overview of what transpired in those cases and some key takeaways on this fight. Next slide, please. So, okay, sorry. So the, um, the covenants running with the land attack, it's a challenging one. And in part, that's because um, there's, there's a reason why it's so challenging. It has very deep historical roots. And that's that states have historically highly disfavored the creation of these types of covenants. Um, because they run counter to common law's preference for the free alienability of land. And because of that, not only are many state courts guided by the principle that all doubt should be resolved in favor of the free use of property, but states, through the case law from their respective state supreme courts, of course, have also crafted these really difficult multi-pronged tests um, that you have to meet to establish that one of these suckers was actually truly created. Uh, I won't be getting into the state-specific tests in the interest of time and your sanity, but generally speaking, there's three elements that must be shown. First, the parties must have intended to create a covenant running with the land. And this intent, it's most frequently determined based on the contract's written terms. So a lot of the time you'll look at the contract and the parties will, you know, they'll, they'll insert language saying that they intended such and such to be, to be a covenant running with the land. Second, the covenant must touch and concern the land with which it runs, meaning broadly speaking that the covenant must closely relate to the land, its use or its enjoyment. And third, there has to be privity of a state between the original covenanting parties at the time of the covenant's creation. Importantly, you need all elements to create a covenant running with the land. So it's a one strike you're out type of test. It's also a covenant by covenant analysis. So even if 
a contract has one covenant running with the land, that doesn't mean that any of the other covenants in the contract run with the land too. Next slide, please. As shown in the summary chart in our next slide, which I'll go to in a moment, 2020 was a great year for debtors in large chapter 11 cases on the covenants running with the land front. And we'll chat through those cases, which are Extraction, Southland, and Chesapeake more in a second. Um, before that though, it should give you a little bit of, of a background of what was lingering historically before 2020. And so the positive outcomes for debtors in 2020 are in, in, in stark contrast to the outcomes in the Badlands and the Alta Mesa 2019 cases. Um, and in those cases, the respective bankruptcy courts found that covenants running with the land had been created. Those 2019 cases seem to be a positive trend for midstream counterparties and may have even led some to believe that they had found the fixes, if you will, that they needed post Sabine. Sabine was a, a Southern District bankruptcy court case that was affirmed by the Second Circuit in 2018, um, where the bank bankruptcy court had found that the gas gathering agreement at issue hadn't created uh, covenants running with the land. So with that in mind, next slide. As promised, here's the summary chart for the outcomes in the covenants running with the land fights. Uh, the 2020 cases featured up top and then the selected prior cases at the bottom. In each of, uh, in, sorry, in each of Chesapeake extraction in Southland, all of which involved the bankruptcy um, judge applying different states laws as shown in the, in the table, the judges determined that no covenants running with the land were created. So they were all debtor wins. Next slide, please. Here's a breakdown of where things went wrong for the midstream counterparties for those 23, 2020 cases. Um, and if you look at the right-hand column, you can see the failed elements listed for each of the cases. Rather than do a deep dive into the court's reasoning um, on each of these cases, I'm just going to highlight some major takeaways from these cases uh, for each of the three elements, starting with intent. The lesson from Chesapeake, it's twofold. First, don't assume that just because there's express language in the contract stating that the parties intended to create a covenant running with the land, don't assume that that means it's a slam dunk on that element. And second, other provisions of the contract like remedies focused provisions could potentially form the basis for a judge reading in a different intent into the contract. So what happened in Chesapeake is that even though the contract expressly stated that the parties intended for the obligation to sell certain quantities of gas to run with land, Judge Jones ended up holding that the intent element hadn't been met because certain aspects of the contract were inconsistent with that finding. Um, specifically, he reasoned that because the party's agreement provided that the exclusive remedy for a breach of the obligation to deliver or purchase a specified quantity of gas was a formulaic monetary payment. So meaning that like remedies like specific performance, injunction, injunctive relief, and uh, other equitable, equitable remedies were excluded. 
that purely monetary remedy was, quote, inherently personal in nature and unrelated to any property interest held by Chesapeake, unquote. So the judge found that that provision, plus the fact that the contract at issue was acknowledged to be a two-party forward contract, better expressed the party's true intent. So that, 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 those are the, the lessons for intent. Then next for touching concern, there's a few, a few takeaways. Take um, if you look at extraction, the chart shows that it, it's separated into three because there were, it was actually three separate sets of transportation services agreements that the court considered. Uh, each, each of them had their own adversary proceedings. So Judge Sanchi said in his decisions on, on those three, that the central issue before him in each of those was whether the dedicated and committed interests in the respective agreements touched and concerned the land. And with one exception, Judge Sanchi found that all of the dedications and commitments concerned only personal property and didn't affect the physical use of real property or closely relate to the real property. The exception was a drilling commitment covenant in one of the agreements with elevation. And that drilling commitment uh, covenant required extraction to drill a certain number of wells into its mineral estates across particular lands within a certain time frame. And for that one, Judge Sanchi found that it did touch and concern the land. But even there, the covenant ended up failing the test, the ultimate test, because of the lack of privity. Um, the other takeaway is that it's possible the differences in outcome in cases like extraction uh, versus Badlands and Altamesa may reflect uh, the different governing states' interpretations of what it takes to touch and concern the land. So in Badlands and, and Altamesa, the bankruptcy courts applied Utah and Oklahoma law, respectively, and both of those states tests for touch and concern are broader than Colorado law's test, which Judge Sanchi used in extraction. So whereas Colorado law focuses on whether the covenant directly affects the party's physical use and enjoyment of the land, the Utah and Oklahoma iterations of the touch and concern test focus more on the effect um, that the covenant has on the value of the land. And finally, for privity, I'll highlight two lessons, both of which are from extraction. First, even if state appellate's court's recent decisions don't refer to privity as an element, arguing that privity is no longer required uh, under that state's law is unlikely going to be a winning argument. Um, so like, like Judge Sanchi said in extraction, um, you know, if, for the most part, you'll see that the, the court will assume that it's still a required element as long as the applicable state Supreme Court hasn't said otherwise. Uh, and the second lesson is that when trying to ascertain whether privity exists, uh, look at the contract to see if there was a contemporaneous transfer of a real property interest. Um, that, that is one of the requirements an understanding of Colorado laws to what privity requires. Um, and extraction also held that the conveyance contemplated by privity of a state can't be satisfied by the purported covenant running with the land itself. There must be an actual conveyance of an independent real property interest. 
Next slide, please. But beyond, so beyond the outcomes on, on this fight, one, of, one other important question has arisen recently. Does it even matter? In other words, is this purported covenant running with a land rejection shield even a shield at all? So in the aftermath of Sabine, many believed it was, it was just a given that if there was a covenant running with the land, that meant the contract couldn't be rejected. But Sabine didn't actually hold this. In Sabine, the court simply stated that the parties had agreed that a covenant that runs with the land creates an unrejectable property interest. Similarly, in the 2019 Alta Mesa case, the matter of whether a contract that creates real covenants can be rejected wasn't briefed and it also wasn't analyzed independently by the court. In Alta Mesa, Judge Isker stated without further analysis that, quote, contracts forming real property covenants are not executory. For that proposition, Alta Mesa cited to Badlands, which in turn quoted Sabine. So picking up on this whole, the debtors in 2020 attacked the assumption, arguing that even if there were a covenant running with the land, that wouldn't preclude the rejection of the underlying agreement. Next slide, please. And the 2020 decisions in extraction, Chesapeake and Southland agreed with the debtors. Here though, I, I wanna take a step back and just emphasize that because all three courts had found that there were no covenants running with the land created, these parts of the judge's discussions is just dicta. Um, for non-lawyers, dicta just means that um, the reasoning there wasn't necessary to the ultimate holding or decision in, in the case. Even so, the reasoning from each of these judges on the point may still be persuasive for future bankruptcy judges um, who find themselves in a situation where there is a covenant running with the land and so therefore must actually answer the question of whether the no rejection assumption is, is valid or not. So let's quickly take a look at what each of these decisions said on this point, starting with Judge Sanchi in extraction. Great. Um, so for the sake of time, I'll just be focusing on the highlighted portions. Uh, but as Mark noted earlier, you're welcome to download our webinar slides once they're posted after our presentation. You want to use them as resources and read, read through all the juicy details. Um, so what Judge Sanchi said is that even if the TSAs, the Transportation Services Agreements, contain covenants running with the land, which again, he found that they had not, um, the question became what effect the covenants have on the debtor's property post-rejection. And he said, the answer is simple. Any covenant running with the land still exists as the contract still exists, but it is unenforceable against the debtors and their assigns after the rejection counterparty's claims are satisfied as part of the reorganization process. Um, and then if you look at the bottom, the second highlighted portion, it also, it talks about remedies and, and is, it, 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 it highlights how important remedies provisions are in, in these types of agreements. So he said, all the TSAs provide for money damages which further supports that the covenants running with the land are contractual in nature. Thus, allowing these contracts to be rejected 
pursuant to Section 365 of the Bankruptcy Code, even if they contain covenants running with the land. Um, let's go back to the summary chart. Now, um, Judge Jones, next is Judge Jones uh, in Chesapeake, and his language wasn't as strong as extraction. But nonetheless, Judge Jones agreed that the existence of covenants running with the land and rejection aren't mutually exclusive. Um, notably, if, if you read through what Judge, so Judge, Judge Jones said on, on this point, um, his reasoning supports the notion that it's the presence of a, a covenant running with the land is not a per se bar to rejection, but um, he leaves open the possibility, he says, that, that a plethora of outcomes are possible, um, depending on the particular language in the agreements. And so that leaves open the possibility that maybe in certain circumstances, an agreement containing a covenant running with the land won't qualify as an executory contract and therefore won't be rejectable. Let's go back to the table. And then the final, the final decision from Judge Karen Owens um, is in Southland, and she takes a similar view to Judge Sanchi in extraction, um, you know, assuming arguendo that the, the agreement is, has a real covenant. Uh, she said the debtor could still reject the agreement, and there was nothing in the bankruptcy code that prevents um, rejection, even if real covenants or covenants running with the land do in fact exist or are created in the agreements. Let's go back to the table and we can actually move on to the next slide, please. So that concludes our discussion of the covenants running with the land issues. Um, and now I'll turn it over to my colleague, Mike. Uh, he's gonna be discussing the FERC related issues that have been very hotly litigated in recent midstream rejection fights. Thanks, Anna Lucia. The next section of our presentation concerns the jurisdictional battle between bankruptcy courts and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in hopes of getting some insight into the or or the end of the jurisdictional question. Next slide, slide please. So why is FERC even in the picture? Well, as reflected in this slide in the non-bankruptcy context, FERC has exclusive jurisdiction over certain, quote, filed rate contracts. These comprise private contracts that once filed with the commission become endowed with the force of law under the commission's plenary and exclusive jurisdiction under the quote filed rate doctrine. This regulatory authority is pursuant to kind of three federal statutes: the Federal Power Act, which governs power purchase agreements, the Natural Gas Act, which governs natural gas transportation agreements, and the Interstate Commerce Act which uh, kind of covers uh, interstate oil transportation service agreements. Under Interstate Commerce Act, FERC is charged with ensuring just and reasonable rates through their regulation. And this is a mandate that really is paralleled across FERC's other obligations under the Natural Gas Act and the Federal Power Act. So this kind of sets up, uh, you know, so outside of bankruptcy, FERC will approve a rate as presumptively just and reasonable. And then after this approval, only the commission may, you know, authorize the alteration of a rate after a finding that the rate, if not altered, would seriously harm the public interest. 
this determination is kind of is evaluated under uh, the so-called Mobile Sierra Doctrine, which is applied by FERC under uh, kind of twin 1956 Supreme Court decisions. Next slide. So, you know, this sets up this conflict of competing jurisdiction between bankruptcy courts and uh, FERC over who has a say in determining whether or not a debtor may reject a FERC regulated contract. So it, rejection of executory contracts is classically within a bankruptcy court's core exclusive jurisdiction. But, you know, given this background of certain federal statutes providing FERC with its own exclusive jurisdiction over contracts, filed with the commission, uh, it prevents an unavoidable conflict and uh, which courts have been really struggling to reconcile for some time. At core of this conflict is, is really a fundamental difference in the understanding of rejection and the scope of FERC's regulation. And it's just been very difficult to square a bankruptcy court's understanding that rejection constitutes a breach with the rate being given full effect and rejection damages without more and FERC's view that rejection inherently works in abrogation or modification of the regulated rate. Next slide, please. So here we've summarized some of the recent salient decisions, which you know uh, are parallel with the uh, decisions that uh, Anna Lucia covered earlier in this presentation. And though technically a 2019 decision, we've also uh, included first energy given the pellet level of review and its uh, the decisions issuance late in December of 2019. Uh, so these decisions have uniformly resulted in the power of bankruptcy courts to authorize rejection of contracts in bankruptcy without any veto power by FERC. So uh, could we please click on uh, the Sixth Circuit seal for some opinion highlights there? So in overruling the Ohio bankruptcy court's decision below, which found its own exclusive and unlimited jurisdiction, uh, the Sixth Circuit concluded that the public necessity of available and functional bankruptcy relief is generally superior to the necessity of FERC having complete or exclusive authority to regulate energy contracts and markets. And went on to conclude that if a bankruptcy's court jurisdiction is not exclusive, and as we'll explain, it is not, its position in the concurrent jurisdiction is nonetheless primary or superior to FERC's position. So given that conflict, the Sixth Circuit found somebody had to win and the bankruptcy court was the winner in this instance. And part of the reasoning underscoring this primacy in First Energy, as well as the Fifth Circuit's earlier sister decision in Morant, is that the debtors in those cases no longer had need for the purchased power at any rate. Um, while in kind of a much earlier decision by the Southern District in New York of New York in Calpine, the jurisdictional issue went the other way when the rejection decision was expressly based upon above market contract terms. Um, this distinction may be resolved uh, in uh, Gulfport's energy uh, current restructuring. Uh, let's return to the summary chart, please. So uh, moving on to the next decision, um, we, we see Ultra, which also uh, found uh, exclusive bankruptcy court jurisdiction over the rejection decision. And uh, if we could click on Judge Isger for to review some notable points of his Ultra opinion. 
So in, in, uh, in authorizing rejection, Judge Isger discussed FERC's jurisdiction and kind of underscored the position that rejection did not interfere with FERC's jurisdiction over rates. He said uh, the code, code in the Supreme Court make it clear that by authorizing rejection, the court is neither abrogating nor modifying the agreement. And rejection only relieves the state of the burdens of the agreement and allows Rockies Express, the midstream counterparty in that case, to recover a bankruptcy claim against Ultra based on the full amount of its damages. And concluded simply that FERC's jurisdiction concerning rate setting is unaltered by rejection. As we will touch on a bit more later, the reorganized debtors continued use of the pipeline in that case was left as a bit of an open issue um, that had some post reorganizational consequences. Let's return to the summary chart, please. So finally, um, Judge Sansi in extraction also like uh, Judge Isger found that the bankruptcy court really had the final say without any FERC veto. So could we click on Judge Sansi to uh, take a look at his, some of his takes? So Judge Sansi actually spoke on the jurisdictional point twice. First, in the context of his denial of uh, Grand Mesa, the midstream counterparty in that case, their stay relief motion, which uh, they were trying to seek to uh, institute proceedings before FERC with respect to the rejection. And then again, in the context of his rejection decision. Uh, you know, the relevant portions of those decisions are, are laid out in the slide. And just uh, to review some of the highlights uh, in uh, the state relief motion, uh, Judge Sanchi just kind of took his own take and kind of uh, rejected kind of the notion that had been kind of popping up in other decisions that there was concurrent jurisdiction and kind of rephrased it as uh, as parallel exclusive jurisdiction. And he kind of ex went on to explain that it would be a violation of FERC's exclusive jurisdiction for this court to consider or to decide whether abrogation or modification of the filed rate obligation is consistent with the public interest and the ICA. But, uh, you know, but he, he did view that, uh, uh, you know, when it's in the bankruptcy court's bailiwick, uh, as the court recently described to the court and FERC having parallel exclusive jurisdiction, a debtor seeking to reject a FERC jurisdictional contract through bankruptcy must obtain approval from the bankruptcy court to reject the contract, but a debtor may go before FERC to abrogate or modify the filed rate in that contract. They are two separate matters. So again, like Judge Isger, you know, they're just, you know, squaring the circle by seeing these as two different pieces of the puzzle. So uh, could we return to the summary slide, please? Thank you. And we'll move on to the next slide here and, and turn it back over to Anna Lucia. Great. Um, if you could go to the next slide, that'd be great. Oh, unless, actually, Mike, I think we... Sorry, got a little off track. If, if we could just back up to yes. slide 20. My apologies. <laughs> Definitely don't want to steal your thunder. Back to oh, you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for the technical hiccup. Um, so anyway, so it, given this kind of jurisdictional conflict, uh, you know, there's there's been kind of, uh, you know, an advantage given which forum the parties litigate these rejection decisions in. So this... Uh, 
you know, so given the prospect for a more favorable playing field under FERC's higher standard compared to the lenient business judgment of rejection, which we'll discuss a little bit more shortly, uh, contract counterparties frequently seek FERC declaratory orders in anticipation of bankruptcy filing with the goal of styming rejection. And FERC kind of uh, trying to protect its own turf cooperated in, in these kind of strategies by issuing orders that include finding relating to both the jurisdictional question by asserting in the, their orders that the commission has at least concurrent jurisdiction with the bankruptcy court over any rejection decision and also preemptively making determinations that the rejection of uh, rejection to modification of filed rates is not warranted under the public interest standard in any forthcoming bankruptcy. Next slide, please. So while parties have done this, uh, you know, frequently in earlier cases, the advantage conferred by these FERC declaratory orders is a bit questionable now in light of Ultra and Extraction's recent views on jurisdiction. So the, the cases that motivated the strategy are, are kind of a pair of much earlier cases um, that I kind of alluded to earlier in, in, in Ray Calpine, where the court ultimately found that it lacked subject matter jurisdiction and FERC had exclusive jurisdiction over the disposition of uh, Federal Power Act regulated contracts and, and also Boston generating, which, uh, you know, which uh, the presence of uh, FERC jurisdiction uh, resulted in a mandatory withdrawal of the bankruptcy court's reference and, and, uh, and uh, you know, an ensuing decision that uh, expressly provided that rejection would require both FERC and bankruptcy court approval. Next slide, please. So um, the, like I noted, uh, kind of the success of the strategy is, is kind of still a little bit up in the air. Um, the effect of pre-partition FERC orders was ultimately mooted in uh, the PG&E bankruptcy where the Ninth Circuit recently vacated uh, an order uh, dismissing FERC's appeal without weighing on the merits of the argument because uh, the PG&E's chapter 11 plan, uh, you know, eventually called for the assumption of all PPAs. So really there was nothing left for any sort of rejection determination. Um, in Ultra, uh, uh, the midstream counterparty had filed a FERC petition, but the proceeding was stayed before FERC could issue a ruling and uh, which is amongst other issues currently on appeal. And uh, uh, Chesapeake also saw this issue uh, pop up and, um, but like uh, this, this issue is probably also going to be um, mooted out or otherwise resolved by a pending settlement with the midstream counterparty. So um, another topic that's been the subject of recent litigation is what standard applies when the bankruptcy court is faced with a debtor's request to reject a FERC filed rate contract. Uh, and Anna Lucia will take us through that next. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, the question of what standard actually applies, it's definitely been heavily litigated in the in the 2020 cases. Um, I'll, I'll go through this quickly since it's pretty straightforward, but the, the battle is between uh, the business judgment standard, which is what the debtors say should apply, um, and then the, the heightened public interest standard, which is what the midstream counterparties advocate for. 
Um, and, and they say that it should be a heightened public interest standard because of the special nature of, of the contracts, um, them being for regu regulated, et cetera. Um, they say, you know, there should be a heightened standard. Why does it matter? Well, the standard will, event, will essentially determine the level of hurdles that the debtors have to overcome to get the bankruptcy court's blessing on rejection. So of course, they're going to want the lower, more deferential business judgment standard because it, it makes it much easier for them to win on rejection. Um, and the midstream counterparties, of course, want the application of the heightened public interest standard because that makes rejection more difficult. Um, really quickly, business judgment standard, what does it mean? It, it allows a debtor to reject a contract if they can show that the contract is financially burdensome um, and that rejection would benefit the debtor's estate. It's very deferential. Um, it's very clear to the court that it's, it isn't their role to second guess the debtor's business judgment. And for the most part, the bankruptcy court affirms the debtor's business judgment. Um, absent a finding, of course, that the decision to reject was you know, the product of bad faith or whim or caprice. Um, for the heightened public interest standard, what actually goes into that is a little less clear, but we'll talk about um, what some of the 2020 cases have said about that. Uh, for now, suffice it to say that the rejection standard issue is yet another choice of venue consideration for ENP debtors. Next slide, please. And here we have the lay of the land on the rejection standard. So as the chart shows, the, the top two uh, rows, before the 2020 cases, there were two circuit level decisions that spoke on the issue. We have the Fifth Circuit in Merent and the Sixth Circuit in, in First Energy. And both of them subscribed to the view that a heightened public interest standard should apply um, given the nature of the contracts involved. Now, both of those cases involved power purchase agreements um, or similar creatures, similar PPA creatures. Um, and, and those are one of the kinds of uh, FERC filed rate contracts uh, tied to FERC's authority under the Federal Power Act. Um, I, in the interest of time, I, we won't go through those two, but we will be talking about them um, within the context of the 2020 cases. So let's focus in on the 2020 cases. In 2020, Judge Isger adopted in part and extended the Fifth Circuit's uh, 2004 Murant decision to the rejection of a natural gas contract with Judge Isger applying a heightened public interest standard. So let's go ahead and click on Judge Isger to see what he said. And, um, what he explained in that context that he had to scrutinize the impact of rejection on the public interest and on the supply of natural gas to consumers. And after determining the public interest and supply concerns, he had to weigh those concerns against the agreement's burden on ultras reorganization. After considering all of the evidence at trial, he ended up concluding that there was simply no evidence that the rejection of the contract would cause any disruption in the supply of natural gas to other public utilities or to consumers or other harm, material or not, to the public health, safety, or welfare. Um, and one important, uh, a side note too, is he talked about, you know, whether to consider macroeconomic issues. And he ended up saying that he didn't believe 
set macroeconomic issues concerning the general effect of rejection uh, of FERC contracts are the proper focus for a court. Um, so that was rejected by him. Let's go back to the summary chart, please. Great. So now let's uh, let's look at the contrasting decision. That's Delaware Bankruptcy Court, Judge Sanchi's extraction decision. Um, let's click on Judge Sanchi, please. Because he, he ended up applying the business judgment standard to um, the debtor's request to reject oil transportation services agreements. Um, so he said section 365 of the bankruptcy code does not mandate that the court consider public policy or public interest. It is irrelevant for section 365's purposes. And then he ended up saying uh, the court does not believe that a heightened scrutiny, including consideration of the public interest, is warranted. Um, it's worth noting, though, that then Judge Sanchi goes into this assuming arguendo that, you know, that, that a heightened standard is warranted, and that he goes into an analysis of whether uh, he takes into consideration the public interest. But even there, in all of that discussion, which is dicta, of course, um, he ends up concluding that even if a heightened public interest standard were warranted, the debtors had met their burden for approval of the rejections. Let's go back to the table, please. Um, and, and let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So the application of different rejection standards in ultra and extraction, which are highlighted there in the, in the table for you, that leads to the question of whether the nature of the FERC filed rate contract at issue makes a difference. And Judge Sanchi appears to think so. So in his extraction decision, he explained that no court has applied the Fifth Circuit's heightened merit rejection standard to oil transportation services agreements. And he further remarked that this wasn't surprising given that FERC has a more limited jurisdiction over interstate oil pipelines than over power and gas contracts, uh, which of course were at issue in Merit and Ultra. And he also noted that the Interstate Commerce Act, which is a statute that governs interstate oil pipelines, um, has a different understanding of what the public interest is than other statutes like the Natural Gas Act. Um, he said the public interest in the ICA encompasses just and reasonable pipeline rates and terms and an efficient petroleum market, whereas for purposes of the Natural Gas Act, the public interest encompasses plentiful and uninterrupted supplies of fuel for, to the public. So it'll be interesting to see whether other courts adopt Judge Sanchi's reasoning and his differentiation between oil and natural gas transportation contracts. Next slide, please. So if a higher rejection standard does apply, what if any role should FERC have? Um, well, according to the Sixth Circuit and First Energy, which was December 2019 decision, a bankruptcy court need only provide FERC with a reasonable accommodation or suffer a reasonable delay in providing such opportunity. Reasonableness is relative, however. Um, they also recognize that even, even if they're required, uh, you know, the bankruptcy court is required to give FERC the invitation, FERC isn't compelled to participate. Um, so, so again, the bankruptcy court 
must invite FERC to participate and provide an opinion in accordance with the ordinary FPA approach uh, within a reasonable time. Let's go back to the, uh, oh, no, sorry. There, is, there are no judge uh, faces to click on here. Um, go to the next slide, please. So the second decision is from Judge Isger and he was following Merent. Um, and what he said and what he did with respect to FERC's role in the ultra petroleum case um, is that he requested that FERC participate as a party in interest um, to argue and to comment on whether rejection of the agreement would harm the public interest. The judge acknowledged though that even though FERC participated in the proceedings, um, FERC said it wouldn't take a position on the public interest implications. Next slide, slide please. And the reason that FERC said in Ultra and in other recent cases that it wouldn't, and indeed that it couldn't weigh in on the public interest implications um, as part of the rejection process is because the commission, according to the commission, um, says it can only speak through formal orders. And for it to issue a formal order, it must first administer its own deliberative process through which you know, it would hear from various constituents like shippers, localities, uh, community representatives and others. So because of this, FERC has argued that this FERC light approach, if you will, adopted by some courts, um, it isn't enough. Uh, just letting FERC participate in the rejection proceeding, according to FERC, is, isn't enough. Um, the only way for it to meaningfully weigh in on the public interest is to let it conduct its own administrative process, um, make its determination in that context, and not through just this participation pass in, in bankruptcy court. Um, and apart from the issue of, of, of FERC's participation in the rejection proceedings um, in bankruptcy court, there's also some considerations uh, with respect to its participation post-rejection, which Mike will discuss now. Next slide. Thanks, Tana, Lucia. Um, yeah, the, the ultimate effects of contract rejection on FERC's regulation of the reorganized debtor post-reorganization, uh, post post-bankruptcy is likewise a bit unclear. Um, you know, uh, FERC has pointed to the some confirmation requirements with respect to regulation to kind of as a vehicle to bolster its regulatory authority. And uh, courts have has really responded by, uh, you know, just stating again that the subject plans don't involve a change in rate, the rate having given then given full expression and rejecting damages. And further by kind of some interesting reasoning that the FERC rates are not rates quote of the debtor, but rather that of the relevant pipeline or other counterparty as the regulated entity. Uh, we kind of saw some, saw some of this come up in the extraction confirmation proceedings. And um, there was also some kind of interesting post reorganization um, uh, innovation in, in ULTRA where, um, where Judge Isger noted that uh, any, you know, continuing access of the debtor um, uh, post reorganization to uh, the pipeline that had formerly accessed through the rejected contract would be through FERC's open tariff rule and uh, Judge Isger, you know, expressly conditioned rejection on the quote possible condition that upon rejection. Uh, the contract counterparty may, you know, work with FERC approval to seek to treat 
alter the same way that it would be able to treat a counterparty who had breached a contract outside of bankruptcy and, and ultimately bar uh, the reorganized debtor from accessing the pipeline through the otherwise applicable open access provisions. Um, um, and then uh, next slide, please. You know, uh, the, these issues, you know, uh, you know, while there has been some decisions coming out, uh, a lot of them are still live, um, getting set up in, in Gulfport and uh, still being subject to uh, court determination in, in Sanchez. And then just being really subject to a variety of pending appeals in ultra extraction in Chesapeake. Uh, in the interest of time, I'll just kind of leave uh, this to be a little bit more fully digested uh, <laughs> in, in the slides that will be distributed after today's webinar. And I'll hand it over to, to, to Sean to take us through, uh, through uh, some operational impacts in the next slide. Thanks, Mike. I'll try to go through this with a, a bit of a lightning round cadence. Um, one quick note from the prior slide, Sanchez Energy Judge, Judge Isger has the opportunity to weigh in on the argument, uh, this, this new variant we talked about before of whether covenant running with the land is truly a bar to rejection or if you can still reject anyway. So interesting to see if he comes out the, the same way that Jones did in dicta. Uh, so, okay, to the current slide, because rejection and assumption is a contract by contract fair, usually very piecemeal. Just wanted to spend a few minutes to talk about some more global approaches. We've seen front-ended uh, in terms of the, the process timing, RSA or plan requirements in both Chesapeake and Gulfport. This slide just compares the two. In Chesapeake, the debtors are obligated to uh, realize, quote, sufficient savings. Uh, with regard to their midstream contracts. And then sufficient is determined by sort of uh, one, one set of RSA parties, unless the debtors get essentially all of the RSA parties on board and then some, some reasonable consent rights. Uh, that's a little looser version than in Gulfport, the RSA contains a milestone calling for permanent reduction uh, via court orders of um, future fees and uh, volumes, um, firm transportation agreements. So, you know, you can sort of compare and contrast the language, Chesapeake, midstream contracts, sufficient savings, very open-ended, Gulfport, quantified requirements for specific um, types of agreements. In Chesapeake, uh, just to go back to a, a point Mark made at the outset, the debtors in the UCC stipulated that are approximately $2.1 billion um, taking just PV10 value of midstream savings from all the various renegotiations and projections that the debtors were able to accomplish over the course of the case. Uh, Gulfport, I guess, still, still remains to be seen. Uh, but, it, but again, this is supposed to be a material part of the restructuring. Next slide, please. This is just the full language for future reference. So again, you can sort of compare and contrast. Um, next slide, please. Okay, so contrasting the front-loaded, uh, pre-negotiated approach of Chesapeake and Gulfport, just wanted to talk for a few minutes about Sanchez Energy, now known as Mesquite Energy. 
A few key facts. Sanchez was uh, free fall filing in August 2019. From the very outset, there was an ad hoc unsecured notes group and then the UCC pursuing uh, sort of insider dealings, fraud con claims against uh, management and Sanchez family, some lean avoidance actions, a whole separate bucket of stuff. Debtors took their time. They, they lingered in court on a new business plan and plan through March of 2020, then when you had uh, simultaneous supply and demand side shocks, to commodity prices, all of a sudden the, you know, the possibility of administrative insolvency came up, total enterprise value dropped to less than the new money dip draws from earlier in the case, never a good sign. So there was a new goal, emerge as quickly as possible, uh, a plan that sort of booted a lot of stuff to the post-confirmation period was confirmed on April 30th. And although uh, Judge Isger told the parties, you know, be prepared to, to close and go effective, you know, the, the day of the confirmation hearing or the next day, uh, that did not happen. And so the debtors now getting sort of to the slide content, the debtors put forth this midstream settlement post-confirmation pre-effective date. They were going to assume agreements with an affiliate, a JV that was partly owned by an affiliate and then a third party as well for some upfront cash. So they could say, oh, you know, look at this benefit to the estate um, beyond the fact that we're, that we're saving uh, money by rejecting certain other burdens and things. Oh, and this is the, the real hook. So the settlement parties would agree to provide reduced rates and eliminate some MVCs if the debtors went off and rejected agreements with other counterparties in the same areas. So obviously those other counterparties were not happy, objected to the settlement. Court said, listen, I'll approve the settlement. It's good for the estate. Uh, preserve your ability to contest rejection, which several of them did, spawn some interesting adversary proceedings. Uh, Sanchez is also great on rejection generally. There was a, a joint development agreement that if you search around for that on the, the docket and reorg Intel, uh, pretty much, maybe not FERC, but I, I wanna say most of the rest of the issues we've talked about today came up. Uh, there was some briefing on business judgment, which is never a good sign as Ana Lucia mentioned, it's a, an incredibly deferential standard. So if you're running into issues on business judgment, not great, um, that's, a, that's a fun one to review. Uh, next slide, please. Just finish with a few of the themes that we've we've raised today. Um, you know, these midstream savings RSA or plan provisions can de-risk an investment thesis. It's great. You don't have to worry about uh, modeling in potential cost savings if, boom, they're already there during the course of the case. Uh, I think the next extension would be even if you took, say, a, a free fall filing, if you don't have an RSA or a plan a dip provider, you could sort of take the Gulfport approach of crafting it as a milestone and you could sneak in a, a dip milestone if you wanted to kind of try to preserve some of that control without having a, a fully baked deal on the front end. Uh, and then just the additional points, uh, 2020 was a great year for debtor leverage, not so great for anyone trying to push back against rejection. Uh, and then the very last bullet, you have to, you know, all these, all these legal avenues are great, but you have to come back to the facts. So if there's only one gathering system, you're going to, you know, probably keep or have a little bit more of a consensual 
renegotiation of that agreement as, a, as opposed to a situation where you have alternatives. Um, and then affiliate issues, we saw uh, Sanchez and Gavilan Resources had some heavily contested litigation about um, whether operatorship rights under this joint development agreement had transferred to Gavilan uh, pre-petition. And then they just wound up, Sanchez wound up buying the, the Gavilan assets in its, in its own chapter 11 case. So again, you're just sort of funneling things back to settlement and it's how much leverage does one side have uh, relative to the other. And with that, I will hand it back to Mark. Thanks, Sean. So that uh, concludes this live portion of our presentation. Uh, I see we're over the hour mark, but we're gonna continue to plow through and answer your questions. So let's see what we've got. And I'll see a uh, uh, first one, I think it's for you. Uh, Ultra's use of a heightened public interest standard doesn't sound like a win for the debtors. So should that be categorized more as a loss or am I missing something? Yeah, so you, you're right that, that Ultra's use of the heightened standard, um, it certainly wasn't as favorable as extraction's use of the business judgment standard. Um, but I guess two points. First, even though Ultra ended up using the higher standard, the court still ended up permitting the debtors to reject the natural gas PSAs um, that were the focus of that case. Um, and, and that leads to my second point, one of the reasons that the debtors still ended up winning on the ultimate rejection um, fight front might partially be because, uh, because of another slight win for the debtors, which is the fact that the, the public interest standard used by Judge Isger, it's not as high as other public interest oriented standards that are out there. Um, so for example, if the bankruptcy court had instead adopted the Mobile Sierra test that FERC uses in its own public interest determination proceedings, um, the ultra debtors would have had an even harder time meeting their rejection burden. So uh, um, just for some color, Mobile Sierra, uh, it provides that a party that's seeking to avoid its contractual obligations, they can only do that if they meet the burden of demonstrating unequivocal public necessity or extraordinary circumstances where the public interest will be severely harmed by continued compliance. So even within the realm of public interest standards, there's, you know, there's, there's public interest baby standard, it's easier to meet. That's kind of like what, what was used in ULTRA. Um, and then there's, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, this mobile Sierra um, beast that FERC really, really wants to apply, but it hasn't, it hasn't had the chance to do it in the rejection process uh, context. So yeah, thanks for that question. Thank you. Um, so Mike, next one. Under the business judgment standard, do you need real alternative options to truly reject firm transportation and gathering contracts? Uh, th thanks, Mark. Uh, yeah, as Sean mentioned, you know, the biggest judgment standard is is really truly lenient. And and you generally you don't absolutely need to have a bird on in the bush before you uh, reject the bird in the hand, so to speak. Uh, you know, we've we've seen kind of uh, debtors have a lot of creativity on this front, um, you know, um, shutting in wells rather than um, rather than utilize transportation capacity you know, making temporary arrangements to uh, 
you know, truck oil and gas production rather than flow it through pipelines pending uh, the finalization of, uh, you know, alternative contractual arrangements or, or sometimes even the uh, projected construction of alternative, uh, you know, gathering systems or, or pipelines. And, uh, you know, Ultra saw kind of an interesting creative solution where uh, the debtor ultimately, you know, in part using the leverage of the threat of rejection, uh, ultimately purchased uh, a gathering system that was uh, subject to a rejection dispute. And uh, as an interesting aside in, in, in extraction, one of the one of the midstream counterparties that was targeted uh, through uh, for rejection, uh, you know, tried to insert a little leverage in the process by targeting, uh, you know, uh, third party potential alternative service providers to the debtors with uh, state court litigation, um, which ultimately uh, the bankruptcy court found to be a violation of the automatic stay. So um, yeah, long answer to a short question, but uh, the answer is no. We appreciate all your callers. So thanks for that long answer. <laughs> um, Sean, next question. Uh, what are the odds a midstream savings clause derails a plan? Uh, good question, Mark. I'd, cl classic law school answer, it, it depends. Uh, I guess the, the facts of the case and the, the language of the provision on the facts, I mean, there's, there's sort of a natural alignment of interest between the, the debtors and RSA parties, uh, you know, who wouldn't want to save money. So I'm kind of looking at, at Chesapeake and Gulfport as less, uh, you know, truly hard requirements and, and more of a, a macro scapegoat. Uh, you know, if, if the world or facts of the case change drastically at some point, like you saw in March, 2020, this could just be a, a very convenient hook um, to either get out of or, or retrade the overall deal if you need to. Um, and so, you know, it, barring some big change in circumstances, I, I don't think you ever even get to that sort of, you know, um, downside use of, use of the optionality baked in here. But on the language, I mean, Gulfport, it's, it's defined quantitatively, it's more narrow. So there's less ability for RSA parties to exercise discretion. Um, but it but it could to, I guess, to go back to the language of the question, it, it certainly could derail um, the plan because it's built in as a milestone. So if it's not met, you know, it allows parties to, to back out of, of the RSA potentially. Um, Chesapeake is, I guess it's kind of a flip-flop. It's on the discretion side, much more wiggle room and, you know, just quote, sufficient savings, but it doesn't really impact the plan itself other than to say, okay, you know, if, if there aren't sufficient savings, just go wind down the affected assets separately. So it's, it's not, you're not blowing anything up. Thanks. Um, I don't see it. I got another one for you. What's the chance that the FERC versus bankruptcy court jurisdictional issues and or the rejection standard issues go all the way up to the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's FERC's dream. Um, so yeah, FERC has been really clear in some of these recent cases that it would love to have these issues go up to the Supreme Court, um, you know, so that there can be final, finality on, on the issues and they can have a shot um, with the, the, highest, uh, the highest court in our land to plead its case and, and bring up its arguments. Um, the problem there, one of the obstacles that, that was briefly touched on in, in the presentation, 
is that even though these rejection decisions almost inevitably always get appealed, many times the non-FERC parties eventually reach settlements um, with the debtors. And then those settlements get incorporated into the debtors chapter 11 plans. And, and an important part of the settlements is that the appealing parties agree to dismiss their appeals. So that ends up mooting out the issues and, and basically precludes FERC from actually moving forward with its own appeals um, and its jurisdictional or standard related arguments. Um, so it, it's kind of reached that block and it hasn't had an opportunity yet. Um, and of course, if in a future case, the appeals actually are able to go up the chain um, and there is an opportunity to file a cert petition with, with the Supreme Court, then it'll be up to the Supreme Court to decide whether it wants to consider um, the issue or issues that are raised. Um, but you know, generally speaking, when there are court splits, significant court splits, and um, when it deals with competing statutes, that's that's kind of those are some of the types of um, decisions that the Supreme Court will consider. Um, but but again, it's it's up to them. It's in their discretion. Thank you. And now that's all the time we have for today. Um, as a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data, and analytics built for law firms, investors, and advisors. If anyone has any further questions on this topic or other topics, please send them over to customer success at reorg.com. Remember, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg media page within 24 hours. A big thank you to everyone who joined us today, especially my colleagues, senior legal analyst, Annalisa Hurtado, and distressed that legal analyst, Mike Legg and Sean Daly. Thank you and have a great day. There you have it. Thanks again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find our podcast on reorg.com. Check the media page, Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Have a nice weekend.